What's going on and welcome into this week's version of the Pelicans podcast presented by SeatGeek. I'm Daniel Salerson. Hope everyone has had a great week so far, continuing to practice that social distancing. We have another great podcast for you. Later on, we'll have Ramon Sessions from the Pelicans front office come on. But first, of course, we wanted to put a bow on the Last Dance documentary from ESPN. Of course, most of you, I'm sure, were watching all 10 episodes as it unfortunately came to an end on Sunday. More so, unfortunately, because I think everyone enjoyed it so much. So to kind of get some insight on that pot, on that entire documentary, we welcome in the vice president and executive producer of ESPN Films and, of course, played a key role in this 10-part documentary. That is John Dahl. John, I really appreciate the time. Hope you and your family are staying safe right now. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So we want to kind of peel back the curtain and really go behind the scenes of how this all came about. Obviously... Um, this was not just a 10-week process. This goes on for uh, a long time. So when did this process really begin to start this Michael Jordan documentary in The Last Dance? Well, um, it, it started to go into production early in 2018, where Jason Hare, the director, and his team started uh, getting the research together and formulating a storytelling plan. We didn't officially announce uh, the series though until May of 2018. So that's when it went full throttle from that point till, till now. So it was basically a solid two years of production to, to completion. Was it hard trying to find the balance of making this mostly about Michael Jordan, but also incorporate other people that were impacted, whether it was the Scottie Pippen portion, the Steve Kerr, Dennis Rodman, Phil Jackson. I thought you all did a great job of kind of going back and forth through the 10 part series about, you know, focusing on Michael, but also focusing on these six different teams that led to six different championships. Was it hard to balance that? Or how did you all come up with the idea to kind of go back and forth between the two topics? Well, the conceit of the project was always about that last championship season in Chicago, the 1997-98 season. And it was an NBA uh, producer at that time, Andy Thompson, who is the uncle to Clay Thompson, brother to Michael Thompson, uh, who uh, came up with the idea to follow Michael and the Bulls for that 1997-98 season, which was becoming apparent at that time that it would be the last dance season, so to speak. That's what Phil Jackson called it, um, because there was an effort to say, look, it's, it's time to break this team up for various reasons, age, contracts, whatnot. And Michael Jordan and, and his teammates were adamant that they wanted to keep it together as long as they could I mean, they were winning. They, you know, they won three championships uh, in Michael's first run with the Bulls. He retires for a while, plays baseball, comes back, and in the first full season back, they have that historic 72-10 and 10 campaign and then win this title again the next year in 1996-97. So they wanted to stay together, and the idea was to follow that team throughout the season. So NBA cameras were chronicling it all throughout the season. And, you know, from that point, um, you know, it just, it was a long time in the making from when it went from footage that was shot of that championship season ending dramatically with Michael Jordan's winning shot to actually becoming a film. That, that was quite some time. But always the project was built around that season. So what Jason Hare, uh, the director, did uh, just such a fantastic job of doing was constructing it in a way and it's built around that season, but then you do flashbacks and get to know the characters. Michael Jordan, this is really, you know, starring Michael Jordan, but it's not a Michael Jordan bio. The season, the last dance season stars him. Of course, you got Dennis Rodman, Scottie Pippen, and Phil Jackson, Steve Kerr, and Tony Kukoc, and others. 
to explore, but it was always the thread for those 10 episodes was always the 97, 98 season. Absolutely. And you all did such a good job creating those flashbacks. When you see all the behind the scenes content that you were able to get from that last season, were you surprised by how much access they were able to get when you were looking at all this footage and going, wow, we have so much that we can put into this based on what the cameras were able to capture, whether it was in a locker room, on a bus, whether it was the dream team, all that. Were you kind of surprised by how much they were able to get? Yeah, it was impressive. And that took the Bulls uh, being on board for it. Not just Michael, but also uh, Jerry Reinsdorf, the owner, Phil Jackson, the coach, and the other players. They had to be comfortable with it. And it's pretty remarkable that they were able to – you know, win yet another championship with the cameras following them like that throughout the whole season. I mean, some 500 hours were shot over the course of that season. That doesn't mean it's all usable or all really works for a, a storytelling uh, multi-part film like The Last Stand. But, but there was a lot of material to choose from, and you really got behind the scenes. You got to see the players um, with their guards down at times, and uh, that was fascinating. And look, you see there's so much access these days uh, with media surrounding NBA players and teams. It's really remarkable to watch. But at the same time, do you think they would be able to get the access like your cameras were able to get for the 97-98 Bulls as far as traveling with the team? I just don't see that happening nowadays. Uh, do you feel like this was kind of a unique opportunity to be able to kind of see how this all developed in 97-98? Oh, it's special. There's no doubt about it. And Adam Silver was the uh, NBA entertainment president at the time. And uh, the agreement was very clear um, that Adam said, look, we're not going to use it uh, for the NBA without you guys being on board, without Michael being on board and, and giving permission for it. And, and saying the other way uh, that Michael uh, wouldn't use it uh, unless uh, the NBA was on board. So it was, it was a mutual understanding. Didn't know if anything would ever come of it. As I think Adam uh, said at the time, if nothing happens, you'll have the best home movies ever to show, show your uh, your family and friends. So, um, yeah, it was uh, it was great access. It was it, it it could happen again. I could see it, but um, you know it's funny. Sometimes access has ebbed and flowed over time. I think sometimes you'll see access from like the 1970s in Major League Baseball with umpires' arguments with 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 managers. Right. <laughs> you don't necessarily see them mic'd up that way today. Yeah. Because. <laughs> um, you know, people are a little more careful about, I think, what they want to share. But there was a, there was a lot of trust here at the time uh, on, on both sides of the equation. And uh, what we got was something remarkable to work with. And I think it's not just enough, though, to have the access. You've got to have a story to tell. And I think that's what Jason Hare, the director, did such an outstanding job of doing, taking this access and now building a story in a way that merges past and present, and the present being the 97-98 season. And when the film starts, past and present are pretty far apart, you know, and over the course of the 10 episodes, they become closer and closer until they're really one and the same by episode 10. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is not your first time covering Michael Jordan in some sort of, whether it's a documentary or uh, an article, weren't you a reporter in, in the 1982 when uh, you were at UNC and so was Michael? Yes, I was. Uh, I went to University of North Carolina and was one year behind Michael. So when I got to Chapel Hill, he had just hit the shot to beat Georgetown to win the 1982 National Championship. In New Orleans. And I wrote for the town paper in Chapel Hill, the Chapel Hill newspaper. That's what it was called, the Chapel Hill newspaper. And um, I, my first story of the basketball season was a one-on-one -on -one with Michael, at then Carmichael Auditorium, which is where Carolina played at the time. And I did a big feature, which I still have to this day. And I followed him throughout that season uh, for the Chapel Hill newspaper. And then the next year, I was a production assistant for the Tar Heel Sports Network, the radio network. So I was at 
most of, of their games um, during Michael's junior season, which was his last season at Carolina, including his last game. I was there in his last game when they lost to Indiana in the Sweet 16 in the NCAA tournament. So, yeah, I was up close. And then, uh, you know, when Michael would come back to campus, uh, be it for, you know, rehabbing or, or finishing his degree, you'd see him on campus. I remember when he was rehabbing his foot in his second season, we would see him on campus. We'd see him in the intramural gym, Woolen Gym, secretly uh, working out, getting ready. The Bulls didn't know it, but we knew it. We'd see him there. Yeah. Uh, I'd see him out on, you know, on, the, on the golf range, learning the game of golf. He was actually in my graduation class. He was actually in the same class as I was. And then I covered him two years in Chicago, too, um, 1989 and 91, when they were trying to get over the hump against the, Bull, the Pistons. I was there firsthand uh, with Andrew Kramer uh, documenting it all. So, um, and I even make a cameo appearance in episode three of the film. You could see me and, and Andrea at, you know, press row behind Doug Collins. So that was kind of fun to see that. So yeah, I, I was, there was a period of about eight or nine years where I was around Michael a good bit. Yeah. I feel like you kind of had the first version of the last dance from his UNC days. If you kind of look at it, if you had all this access or able to travel around with him, it seems like you were kind of the first one to, to kind of really actually cover Michael Jordan and say, would that be, make sense kind of? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, I, those early days, those Carolina days, and, and, and he loved the University of North Carolina, revered Dean Smith. Dean Smith did such a good job coaching him. I think Michael learned great fundamentals at that time about team play. There's that old joke, you know, who's the only one who's ever held Michael Jordan under 20 points a game? Dean Smith. <laughs> um, but you know what? The reality was that made Michael a better player. And Michael, between Dean Smith and the influence of his parents, uh, James and Dolores, um, just had such a great influence on, on who he became. Um, you know, that, that sowed the seeds of a foundation that Michael built on once he went to the NBA. Good stuff there. Uh, talking with John Dahl, the vice president and executive producer of ESPN Films. Of course, played a big role in The Last Dance, which I, I hope everyone enjoyed. I certainly did. But, John, this was not supposed to originally air um, at the end of April and the beginning of May. This was supposed to be in June, uh, I believe, along with the NBA Finals. What were some of the major challenges when, you know, the pandemic hit? Everyone was clamoring some, for some content, some, some sports action, because you weren't going to get any live sports. How did those discussions come about, and what were some of the biggest challenges? Uh, because I believe you all were do still doing some editing um, when it came to the last few episodes, correct? Correct. It wasn't done at all. Connor Shell, uh, our executive vice president, uh, head of content, I've, of course, worked with Connor since the beginning of 30 for 30. Connor called me uh, within, you know, 24 hours of the shutdown and asked me to start exploring what we could do to potentially move it up. And, you know, others involved in the project also were interested in moving it up. I think we all felt that pull before it really took on any life of its own on social media that um, we wanted to see if we could, we could move it up. Uh, and it wasn't easy to do because it wasn't done. We didn't even have first rough cuts yet of episodes nine and 10. Wow. I mean, which is pretty remarkable. I, I didn't see the first rough cut of episode nine until the end of March. And the first rough cut of episode 10 wasn't available until mid-April, like April 14th. That's crazy. And so to turn that episode like we did, again, it's such a tribute to Jason and his team. They were based in New York City. They're based in the epicenter of the pandemic. You know, they had to go to their individual homes and continue editing. Jason was editing himself. And it was a remarkable effort. I mean, so many of us were dedicated to pulling this off and making it the best it could be. And you don't want it to suffer on that, 
on that accelerated timetable. But I drew up over a dozen scenarios of how we could move it up. And the one uh, that I liked uh, the most is actually the one we ended up going with. Our programming executives, Burke Magnus, Salam Ben-Anon, and Brent Colburn, they were, they were terrific, uh, helping us sort out the best possibilities, the best night. Uh, you know, it was just a team effort um, to try to figure out the best plan. We could have maybe rolled out uh, episodes one and two a little bit earlier, but then we would have had a gap. We would have not been able to go continuously. And I think we all felt it was important to have continuity from start to finish. So it was all about, well, when can we finish nine and 10? And when we think we can have nine and 10 ready to go on the air, then we go backwards from there. And so we determined uh, a lot of discussions with Jason, with his post-production team on when we could really be finished and deliver and then create the broadcast masters from there. We determined that the earliest we could start would be April 19th because we couldn't finish before May 17th. And we finished episodes nine and 10 just a few days before air. Like episode 10 was being delivered to our screening group at ESPN on Friday the 15th, you know, just two days before air. Uh, and episode nine was, you know, just a couple of days or so behind that. So we really needed every day that we had to, to do what we did. Was there any fear that it wasn't going to get done in time for the final two episodes? Interestingly, no. Once we decided that was the plan, um, didn't really have any fear at all. I, I, I thought we'd make it because we really were very careful before we selected those dates. Um, we tried not to get too ambitious, but we tried not to be too conservative about it either. And uh, even though the first rough cut of 10 wasn't turned in until the 14th, which was just five days before the series launched, you know, it launched on the 19th, um, I felt confident. And again, it's such a tribute to Jason, to his editors, his producers and, and whatnot, his whole team that, you know, you just have such confidence in them. Jason is so good working uh, under pressure, under a tight deadline. I've worked with him before. Jason uh, directed the Fab Five film. Uh, he's done other great work for us, the 85 Bears. And Jason works quickly. Uh, and not just, you know, quickly, but just getting it on the air. He, Jason works with at a, high, a very high level of quality, he and his entire team. So I always felt confident we would make it, and we did. What was the thought process behind airing two episodes every Sunday? Was it more of one and two went together, so did three and four? Was that the kind of plan from the get-go? Or was this something – that once everything was moved up, then you kind of had to pivot to maybe two episodes per week. The plan was always going to be to pair two episodes. And that's really the way Jason constructed it in that uh, one and two went together, three and four went together, five and six and so on. So that always made sense to us. And when we were going to roll it out in June, um, we were going to pair them up. Um, first couple hours are going to be together and so on. It was going to be 10 hours over 10 days is what we were originally uh, looking at in June around the NBA finals. So we move it up six weeks. But the one thing that just made the most sense was to continue the, uh, the pairing of the episodes. Sure, you could have done four one week, four another two the final week, or you could have done one for 10 weeks. I think that would have been a little too drawn out. Right. Um, but it actually worked well with the way the story was being told to pair them up like that. I think it was great for someone that was, you know, clamoring and waiting for eight o'clock central time every uh, Sunday night. The fact that it wasn't done after one hour, I think everyone would appreciate that. And that leads me into my next question. Just the feedback from this, you know, on Twitter, just seeing everyone, whether it's someone in sports, whether it's someone that needed something to kind of look forward to every Sunday, how fulfilling is it to see how much positive reaction the documentary got, especially 
when it was moved up a couple months? It's incredibly rewarding. I think we we were filling a void during that time to move it up six weeks, but we also felt a, a responsibility, I think all involved, that these are really, really challenging, difficult times we're facing in this world right now. There are some harsh realities. And it's the beauty of sports and storytelling to provide an escape, a way to bring us together. And um, that, was, that was a real inspiration for us to, to figure out how we could do that and to see the way people responded. I mean, the way it became a cultural event. I think anybody involved with it would be lying if we thought, if we said we expected to get that much coverage, you know, over the course of the, um, the five Sundays. I mean, unbelievable, the volume of coverage, the stories about stories, about stories, you know, in the film every week, the way it got people talking. I think it speaks a lot to how fascinated people are um, by Michael Jordan. I mean, Michael <clears throat> opened up, he was unfiltered. He was putting it out there, how he really felt and what he really experienced. And I think people just couldn't get enough of that. And uh, it was extremely uh, rewarding to see how positively people reacted to the content, wanted to talk about it, how it became an event. Um, I just think uh, we're blessed that that is the way it played out. How hard is it before I let you go? You mentioned how unfiltered Michael Jordan was, and, and that was really something special to see, but also how many people you were able to get on the documentary to interview. Uh, there's got to be more than 100, I, I would think, just based on how many people we saw, but was it hard for you all to gather all of these interviews or were so many people wanting to talk about this that it, it was pretty easy? And, and how long did, when did these start? Did this start three years ago when you started to get the footage or did this kind of start, you know, a couple of years ago or even sooner that you were able to add some of these interviews? The interview started in 2018 after we officially launched the project. Uh, Michael, his first interview, he did three interviews, and the first one was not long after we officially announced it. Um, it was in, uh, I believe, in June of 2018, and he sat down two more times. Jason got over 100 interviews. I think it was 106 total, and uh, it's 108 when you count the fact that Michael sat down three different times. Mm -hmm. Jason did most of the interviews himself. His producer, Jake Rogel, did some as well. Um, that's just time consuming. It just takes time to gather all those people. Um, I think we had enormous support cooperation from the NBA, uh, from Michael Jordan's um, uh, representation um, to, uh, to get people to sit down for it. Not everybody would, but, but the great majority did. And uh, the great majority who were interviewed made it into the series at some point, one way or another. So I think we're very grateful to, that people sat down and, and shared um, their feelings about the story as well. Were you able to gather how many sky miles Jason earned in the last few years as far as traveling to all these places and getting the guest? <laughs> <laughs> he must have set some kind of frequent flyer record. I mean, it's incredible. And, and it's a credit to him, to his crew, all the logistics that go into setting up those shoots and interviews. And just got the last one right before everything shut down. Got John Stockton at the very end. Uh, and that, that worked out. Um, so, um, yeah, it was... It was pretty amazing to get all those interviews, but then start editing, you know, all the editing that goes on. People, I don't know that they really understand what's involved, um, all the details that go into making something like that. Ten hours with commercials. Okay, so you're talking about, you know, each episode was 50 minutes. 
every episode has got to start over. It's kind of like the ending in a baseball game. You don't carry over the runners or anything from the previous inning. So he right. has to hit 50 minutes 10 times. 10 times in a row. He can't say, hey, this episode will be 55. This will be 45. It'll add up. So it's 50, 50, 50, 50. And you have to make cuts for every episode. You know, make it fit within the time limitations that you have. And to be editing and working on it that way, doing these time warps that I think Jason and his team did such a marvelous job of doing to take you back in time and be able to follow it, to do all that concurrently, shooting, editing, stringing the story together, taking in the feedback. You know, what my main job during the process was to manage all the feedback, to give my own notes and whatnot, and also manage the feedback from others. And to take all that in and just keep it moving, uh, he did. It was just, just uh, outstanding. It was certainly incredible to watch it, you know, growing up a 90s kid. It was certainly fun just going back and watching some of those broadcasts. You know, I'm a big Bob, Bob Costas fan, so seeing the NBC broadcast brought me back a lot of memories and just watching Jordan and seeing games against Barkley and Ewing and Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. It was just – it was unbelievable. Um, take us to what's next as far as ESPN's 30 for 30. I know you all have a few coming out. I know of one that I'm looking forward to the most as a baseball fan in the Sosa McGuire. 98 documentary but what else is, is coming up for fans that can enjoy these next couple of Sundays well Lance uh, two-part um, 30 for 30 film uh, directed by Marina Zenovich who did the fantastic lies 30 for 30 for us on the Duke lacrosse story uh, Marina has done remarkable work on Robin Williams and um, all, all sorts of figures and it's a really penetrating look at Lance Armstrong I, I don't think people are going to be uh, remotely disappointed. In fact, if you think you know Lance's story, think again. You know, I, I, I highly urge people to watch that. So that's this Sunday night and the following Sunday night, uh, same time that we've been putting on The Last Dance. And then Be Water, the Bruce Lee 30 for 30. I got to tell you, we've got some metrics that say people are every bit as fascinated by Bruce Lee as they are about Michael uh, with Michael Jordan. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's coming up as well. It's an excellent film. And then the long gone summer film, uh, McGuire and Sosa, 98. And it very much takes you back to that time. Yes, no doubt about it. Performance enhancing drugs, Andro, Sarah's, is part of that story when you look at it. No doubt about it. But I think what that film does is it really gives you a chance, though, first to just feel what it was like to be in 98. What was that chase like? How we were all caught up in it. Um, it gives you an opportunity to experience that, too, as well as the, you know, the postscript to that story. Absolutely. That's why I'm looking forward to it. I remember checking SportsCenter every night, watching highlights. The McGuire homer to Sosa, how many times? How close are they? It was, man, I, I can't wait for that. And I actually am going to look forward to watching the Lance and Bruce Lee ones as well. John, I really appreciate the time. This was really fun to kind of hear the backstories of how this thing came together. You all did a phenomenal job. I, I miss it already. I wish there was 20 episodes of it. Um, but thank you for entertaining um, millions of viewers every Sunday for at least five weeks and helping us guide us through a difficult time. I really appreciate your time here today. You're welcome. Thank you again for having me. All right, so we put a bow on the documentary, The Last Dance. Big thanks again to John Dahl for coming on and peeling back the curtain a little bit to talk about how that documentary was made. We'll pivot to the Pelicans, and joining me now is Ramon Sessions, Director of Team Development and Player Engagement. First off, Ramon, thank you for joining us. How are you doing? How are you holding up right now? Oh, thanks for having me, Daniel. Um, holding up, holding up uh, pretty well. Kind of getting adjusted, obviously, to quarantine life. Hopefully, we can get out of this sooner or later. But in the meantime, with the Pelicans, we've been staying busy. Uh, it's funny. I feel like I'm more busier now than I was when I was in the office. Just kind of just making sure everything is aligned. You know, talking to Swin every day, 
going over different scenarios to make to make to make the situation even better for the guys in the family. Oh, I feel like a lot of people have been saying that how they have kept busy during this time, and it's good that you are keeping busy because you know it's tough, obviously, quarantining at home. Um, but besides work, how have you been able to keep busy at home? Whether it's hobbies or watching movies, or is there yeah. anything that's kind of uh, keeping you uh, busy during this time when it's not referring to work? Well, the dog for sure. I'm, <laughs> I'm a dog owner. Uh, had him since he was a puppy. He's eight years old. He's like my little my little son. Um, staying busy with the dog, obviously, but also just trying to get up every morning, make sure I do some work in the office, like do type, do try to keep like a schedule. Whereas getting up, working out, doing some work in the office, going over different stuff, and just trying to set a schedule and just instead of just sitting around all day long. No doubt about that. Obviously, this has been an interesting first year for you here with the Pelicans, but I did want to kind of talk about how you got here, and then we'll kind of go into your role um, with the Pelicans. Was basketball ops always the route you were going to take once you stopped playing basketball, or did this kind of fall into something here with New Orleans? Man, it's, it really fell into something. To be honest, like, um, it wasn't even something I was campaigning for. I didn't put out any filters. I was still working out to play another year in the NBA to try to get back in. I don't know if many people know the story, but I was a year out. I went over and played in Tel Aviv in China. So the next summer comes, and, I, you know, obviously I'm just trying to work out, get back ready for, you know, try to make a run for the season again, the NBA. And I get a call about uh, Griff wanting to reach out to me. And in my mind, obviously I'm working out, so I'm thinking like, okay, Griff want a guy for, uh, you know, a veteran guy on the roster uh, to kind of mentor the younger guys. And um, so my agent reached out. And true story, I was thinking it was about basketball the whole time. And my agent called me back like three days later. It was like, man, he's not talking about basketball. He's talking about a front <laughs> office job. And I'm like, what? Front office? And in the meantime, I'm working out. Like, I didn't, right. I didn't retire. I didn't do right. anything. So it kind of just – that's kind of how the domino started to fall. So what made you decide, made you decide on taking this job? So obviously you're trying to think maybe basketball I can do another year and play for a team and be a mentor yep. to these young guys. What made you decide, well, maybe this is a good opportunity for me to get into the basketball ops? No, I mean, the opportunity, I mean, for him to reach out to me, I played for Griff in Cleveland like in 2000 and I think, oh, 2010. I haven't talked or seen Griff since, so for him to reach out already meant a lot for me. And it's one of those scenarios that, I mean, Griff is – everything about Griff is great in the league, what he does. You know, he's one of the best at it. And it was like, man, you know what? This might be a good transition into uh, a bigger role down uh, down in the future. And I knew basketball for me was coming to an end after being in the league for 11 years. And it was like I still get to do what I love, which is being around the guys, mentoring some of the guys guys and kind of just being somebody that they can lean on that already been through what they're going through. So what was it about that conversation that Griff chose you uh, for this role? Because you, you talked about how you haven't talked to him in almost 10 years yep. before this. Did he kind of explain the reasoning of why he thought you might be a good fit for this job? It's funny because on, on the teams I was in in the past, like I was always the mentor guy that they brought into the team. So I was always kind of the veteran guy. And this just transitioned into me being that veteran guy, but now in a front office role. So it just made a lot of sense. And then, like I said, with the future being so bright, with what Griff is bringing in to the organization, with, with Trajan, with Swin, it just made a lot of sense to, you know, be like, you know what, let me just join these guys and just build for the future. 
So how would you describe your role to someone that maybe doesn't know a lot about it? Director of Team Development and Player Engagement, how would you describe your role here with New Orleans? I would describe my role as obviously just being a former player, it helps a lot. Um, but my role is day-to-day just making sure the guys get what they need off the court. I'm not necessarily a guy that's preaching basketball 24-7. You know, obviously I leave that to the professionals, the coaches and stuff, but I'm one of those guys that they can lean on when they're going through adversity, going through something in the season or going through something outside of basketball. Because just as the game of basketball, I learned so much outside of it also, and I feel like it, it helps with the, uh, with the player development role. Did it excite you knowing that you talked about how this team is, you know, you're excited about this team, excited to work for the opportunity with David and Swin. Did the, the intrigue of having a really young team and not really a rebuild, but a retooling of the team, did that intrigue you the most about taking this opportunity, knowing that you would have a, a plethora of young guys uh, to mentor uh, this season? Yeah, no, it definitely, I mean, looking at the roster, it definitely made a lot more sense just because of what you said, Daniel, as in the young guys coming 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 to the team, obviously with the draft picks, with some of the guys that was always on the roster, but then also just the relationship I got with some of the older guys. I mean, from Etwan to Drew to JJ to those type of guys, you know, I was playing with those guys two or three years ago. So it just all made a lot of sense. And like I said, Griff, his vision for, for what's coming in the future is so you know, it's one of those things that it's, it's, it's something great to be a part of. And I'm just glad that, you know, he reached out to me and obviously things have been working well here with the first year. So what have been some of the challenges with your role right now during this hiatus? Because obviously everyone is separated, um, quarantining in their own spaces. What have you been able to do or what types of programs have you set up here um, yeah. to kind of help out during this time where everyone's hopefully just taking a little break before we get back to basketball? No, like you said, I mean, it's been challenging, but obviously, man, with the team that we have with Swin and Alex um, Kaufman, like it's been real, it's been, it's been a smooth transition because we put a lot of stuff in place for the guys that they could keep busy with. Obviously, we don't want to overwhelm them, but we did different stuff to setting up Zoom calls with them, to checking in with them, you know, if anything they need off the court wise. You know, the part that you miss is just being there, looking at the guys face to face, being able to talk to them. You know, obviously over the phone is a little different. But our guys have been great, man. We have a great group of guys, uh, a great front office staff. And, I mean, it's been really a, a smooth transition w- w- during the quarantine. I was about to ask you how helpful it has been because it seems like everyone I talk to talks about the chemistry of this team, not only building on the court but off the court. You guys really started to click even at the beginning of the season, which is really odd yeah. for a team with so many new people, with a lot of young guys, but you also had that good balance of, of veterans. I mean, how important was it? Uh, for you and Swin to kind of get this team gelling early off the court so that maybe it would translate on the court when everyone was healthy and ready to play again. You say that, Daniel, because I don't know if a lot of people know, but like off the court, it goes so much intact with having that on the court chemistry. And, and coming in, Swin was, had a big role in trying to develop an off the court strategy for the guys so they'll be taken care of off the court and making sure we do different things on the road for them. If it's setting up movies, uh, setting up dinners, you know, different type of things to get that bond because it's, it means so much and it definitely transitions into the uh, on the court is where you can see during the early in the season where we was bonding a little bit more than what people probably would have thought with a new team. Uh, with your time in the league, you know more than anyone about, you know, developing team chemistry. Um, have you been on a team that it's kind of developed that quickly where all of a sudden you all are clicking in training camp and hanging out with each other? Or is this something that is kind of new to you uh, based on what you've seen from this team and how they – really do enjoy being around one another? No, um, just from being around, like you said, like it's, it's not a, it's not an easy thing, but 
it reminds me of one of my younger teams when I was in Milwaukee my second year because the mix is so well. It's not like it's all young guys or older guys or veteran guys, I should say. But it's a great mix, and I think you got to give credit to to Griff Trajan and that, that whole front office and putting that together and also knowing taking guys kind of where it came to chemistry and not just taking just any guy, making sure that guy, you know, complements the next guy on the team. So I think it was a great job just from top to bottom putting it all together. How much does seeing the chemistry off the court influence maybe the front office to that's how they draft players, how they pick up free agency? You know, we talk about skill set and how that complements each other on a team when you're talking about adding new players to a team. Uh, but what about, you know, seeing how this team has really gelled together? How much does that factor in, you think, to maybe how the Pelicans go in the draft and in the free agent round, knowing that they want this culture and this chemistry to really stick not only for this season, but for plenty of years to come? No, I, I think it's big just when you're building the team. And, and Griff, he's been, he's been preaching it all season about the chemistry and the culture of what he wants to bring to the organization. And you got to get pieces that complement other pieces, even off the court. So I think it's a big thing, and, I mean, I think it's a positive thing to kind of be able to, to, be able to build a franchise. Before I let you go, you mentioned Swin Cash and how much she has helped you in your role. Uh, you know, what have you learned from her, um, your day-to-day -day interaction with her? How, what are some of the things that, you know, have impressed you about her and, and how she's really dove into this role as um, in her basketball op role? Man, I, I always think like, Swin, is this your first year doing this? Like, just because she knows so much, so so much knowledge about it. But it's a lot of the little things that you don't think about that Swin will come in and be like, man, you know what, Swin? That made a lot of sense, and it it just adds. And I always tell her like, it's 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 a marathon, and all the little things start to add up. And we, it's just been great working with Swin. Like I say, day to day, I talk to Swin pretty much every day to make sure we're on the same page when it comes to the families and the guys and. And to be honest, I play for eight different franchises, and I'm not saying this just because I'm on this podcast, but I'll tell anybody, like, the stuff that we did this previous year, when it comes to taking the families on trips, like, making sure the guy's taken care of, making sure the family's taken care of, it's been first class, top to bottom. Like, I can't even sit here and think of another organization that I've been a part of that had this structure in place, and Swin is a big credit to that. Yeah, I saw that firsthand, especially on that Christmas road trip, seeing all the families with the with the players. It was certainly really cool to see, and you all have done a great job with that throughout the season. How about our guys uh, itching to get back on the court and uh, work out and stuff like that? I know some are doing that from their homes. Some have come back here for the voluntary workouts. Just from talking to them, how much are guys itching to get back on the court and play some basketball? Oh, man, guys are itching. I think they they scratching now. I think the itch done turned into a deep scratch. Um, <laughs> but it's just letting you know that guys are ready to play. I mean, the whole league is ready. Obviously, what we had going on towards the second half of the season was real exciting. So we definitely just want to continue to build on that. But, you know, it got to make sense and got to be safe, obviously, for everybody involved. So I think the commissioner in the league are, is doing a great job of taking their time and trying to figure it all out. Yeah, no doubt. It certainly uh, seems like uh, more optimistic about stuff getting going, but um, I'm glad that uh, it's good to see that everyone's kind of itching ready to play. I think everyone is ready to watch it, see it. Just basketball yeah. being played, I think, will certainly help during um, this tough time. Ramon, I really appreciate it. learned a lot from your role and your journey here. Um, it's been great getting to know you over this season. Hopefully, we can see each other soon, and I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thanks, Danny. Thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it.
All right, that'll do it for this edition of the Pelicans podcast presented by SeatGeek. A great show today. Big thanks to John Dahl from ESPN and Ramon Sessions for coming on the podcast. We'll have another one for you next week. But until then, hope everyone has a safe holiday weekend. Continue to practice that social distancing, and the weather should be good. So maybe enjoy some crawfish, some barbecue, and uh, just take the time to be with family. I know this is a really tough time for everyone, um, but it certainly could be a great weekend to kind of connect with your loved ones and and enjoy uh, a few days of not really having to think about anything. So again, thanks for stopping by, and we'll talk to you next week right here on the Pelicans podcast presented by CQ.